Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined once again by Kat from Geelong. Now Kat came on the podcast, I think it was episode 58 that Kat was on quite some time ago now and a lot's happened. We connected recently over Facebook and she's back today to share her story of what's been going on for her in the last little while. So Kat... Welcome back. Thank you so much for coming back. How are you doing today? I'm good today, Danny. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, wonderful to be here again in the Zoom room with you, unfortunately under not great circumstances. But as always, I continue to listen to your podcast and there was one a few weeks back with a girl by the name of Casey who touched on grief and alcohol or grief and not drinking. And that yeah, as with all of your podcasts, there's usually a little nugget that I get out of it and that was a lot prompting me to get in touch with you and let you know what's happened to me in the last, I suppose, 18 months or two years since we last recorded yeah. this podcast. Yeah. yeah. So you're three and a half years sober as of today, which is amazing and well done. And when you messaged me on Facebook, yeah, I was pretty shocked where you said that you'd lost your husband recently to mm. melanoma cancer yeah wow I'm so sorry thank you yeah Brett died in December last year 2022 from melanoma he was diagnosed when he was 43 seven years ago around about seven years ago 
and yeah, had lots of different treatments over the years, lots of different operations. Unfortunately, his cancer metastasized at the end of 2021 and throughout 2022 was in and out of hospital quite a bit, trying various last ditch treatments, some drug trials through Peter Mac in Melbourne. Yeah, unfortunately, not successful and yeah, very sadly, he died at the end of 2022, leaving me a single parent with three children, 10, 12 and 14 now. So if ever there was a time to drink, it would be, according to a lot of people, and I've got so many people, oh, you come and have a drink. And I'm like, oh, no, no, that's all right. It's, I think there's no good, <laughs> when you're in so much pain, it's such, it, it's the worst thing to do. It would be the worst thing for me to drink and yeah, it would not be the answer. I don't think that drinking is the answer, especially when you're in pain or stressed and what we probably need to learn through our lives and be taught throughout our lives is how to process what we're going through emotionally without the crutch of alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Firstly, I'm so, so sorry. I just, I was so heartbroken for you when I read that and was super shocked. And I imagine it hasn't been easy even from when he was first diagnosed did it ever go away? Did it go into remission and then come back or was it always kind of there? Yeah, look, he was told at one point he was in remission. He'd have regular scans and there was periods of time where there was no evidence of disease within him. So Brett was a surfer and a carpenter. He did live and play in the sun over the years and sadly, like a lot of people in Australia, don't take looking after their skin seriously and don't understand the damage that it can do. One bad sunburn can lead to melanoma. Just a few stats around melanoma is that it's the most common cancer in people aged 20 to 40. It's the second most common cancer in men and the third most common cancer in women. So we have a real problem in this country whereby we have that Anglo-Celtic background, especially Brett was in that sort of high-risk category, blue eyes. He didn't have red hair, but he had a, when his beard grew, he had a tinge of a ginge in his beard. Tinge of a ginge, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he had an initial sight on the top of his head. He had very thick hair and he had had a skin check in the year prior of, to being diagnosed, but he was playing with something on the top of his head and he was very tall. He was like six foot two, so it wasn't something I could see, but I noticed he was touching the top of his head all the time said to me, what's going on? You know, why are you doing that? And he's like, oh, this is thing that's annoying me. And I said, well, go and get it checked out. And booked both of us in for skin checks because we were due. And he went in in the morning and came back and he said, oh, the doctor wants me to have your appointment this afternoon because he wants me to biopsy. And, and then obviously came back as um, melanoma. He had a the primary site removed from the top of his head that involved a skin graft from his leg. And he was left with like a little fryer chuck bald spot on a man who had thick hair. It was quite, he had this little party trick where he could balance a golf ball on the top of his head there. The human teeing, we used to tease him a bit. But yeah, he, at that stage, he was diagnosed as level three on the, the scale. You know, it goes, I think, one through to four, four being metastatic internal melanoma. But he, yeah, so it had already spread to lymph nodes and he had all the lymph nodes on the left-hand side taken out. So a, a massive operation. The scar went from below his earlobe down to his clavicle, removed all the lymph nodes there. In the subsequent years after that, he was on some 
immunotherapy treatment, oral immunotherapy treatments that were pretty brutal. They did really knock him around about every sort of four weeks. He'd get really flu-like symptoms, high temperatures, that sort of thing. You'd have to take a break from the drugs and then go back on. And that was designed to mop up any cancer cells within his body. So he did have the benefit of some quite new treatments that were available with immunotherapy, but it never actually, you know, I think it dampened it down. And looking back, we probably got another five years with him. If he'd been diagnosed maybe 10 years earlier, I don't think he would have lasted maybe two years. So we had the benefit of these great immunotherapy drugs, but they only really work in about 50% of cases. So yeah, he had other operations to remove cancerous lumps from his neck in the subsequent years. But then in about August 2021, the cancer metastasized in his lung and spine. And then that's when things really, things go up a notch really. So he had radiation to his spine. He had a lung resection to take the cancerous tumor out. It came back, you know, they tried the the big guns, I suppose, which is a double immunotherapy infusion that they give you. It's Ipinevo. A lot of people know about that, particularly if you're a Victorian and if I like football. Jared Roughhead was diagnosed around the same time as Brett. He played for Hawthorne and he had a melanoma on his lip that, that metastasized in his lung. And it was a successful treatment for him, but that's where a lot of people know about it. But it's, yeah, really brutal treatment. It wasn't great for Brett. It absolutely fried his thyroid. He had issues with his liver. He had to come off it after two infusions. So he tried other drugs over 2022, different sort of experimental, not, I suppose not experimental, trial drugs through Peter Mac, uh, unfortunately to no avail. And then, yeah, it was in and out of hospital quite a lot in December, trying to get pain under control and that sort of thing. But by then it was described to me from his oncologist like a wildfire. So it had just spread right through his bones and obviously then into his kidney, uh, kidney and liver, yeah. being those blood filtration organs. Yeah, so really too young. And I suppose that's a little bit of a message I want to get across, Danny, is just for people to take care of their skin you know stay out of the sun (laughs) it is so damaging and we've got it's like an epidemic my cousin is actually a melanoma nurse and she just can't believe the amount of men who come in on the nagging of their wives and oh you know what like yeah it's at epidemic proportions in this country and it's a preventable cancer so yeah it's so important I was just saying to you that it's I don't know, coincidence or what, but yeah, I was just saying mm. to you before we started that I'd just been into the skin cancer clinic just to check a little red thing that's come up on my kind of ankle, which being a ranger, I'm pretty on it mm. these days too. I make sure I go and get checked all the time. It's so, so yeah. important. So Kat, how is it like getting to that place of acceptance, knowing that Brett's leaving mm. for him, for you, for the kids? Yeah. How does one get to that place where you go, okay, oh. this is happening and how do you manage that? Yeah, it was really tough. I think for me, I look my job in the fire brigade, I deal with death quite routinely. So I sort of firmly believe we're all only about six inches away from death. I had to allow my head to go there purely because we have children and I wanted to explain it to them and keep them informed 
in a way that you're letting them know what's going on. And children are perceptive. They're living in a household where the stress is increasing and there's a lot of sadness as well. Brett wasn't really himself during the last sort of, I think from about April, he had to go on some very high dose steroids, which affected him mentally. And he ended up also quite depressed in the last year. So he really wasn't himself. And that pharmaceutical merry-go-round that you get on with the treatment led to issues and they has to go into drugs to combat those issues. And, you know, it's just, it's just awful. You wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. So for Brett and I, we sought a lot of psychological support, which was fantastic. And it allowed us to have some really challenging conversations, even things around like finances. He wasn't working much in 2022. He'd taken quite a bit of time off to concentrate on his health and he was worried about leaving us in a financial hole so we were able to have that conversation about accessing superannuation and insurances and things like that which were really tricky he had to fill out forms terminal illness forms you know just reading that in black and white but we did get to a point where we were I suppose operating in a way of like hoping for the best while preparing for the worst and having to, I wouldn't wish anyone to have to have these sort of conversations with their children where I had to tell my kids that dad's cancer has come back and, you know, their responses varied from, oh, well, he's beaten it before, he'll be okay, he'll beat it again, but saying, look, it's really serious this time, it's internally, it's in his organs and I was very mindful of the fact that I didn't want to give my children like a false sense of hope. We still wanted them to have hope, but that they knew what was going on. So I would say cancer, I would use the correct language. And I got a lot of support through Canteen and they were really good at helping me navigate those conversations with the kids in a, I suppose, an age appropriate way because they were young, 9, 11 and 13 at the time last year. So to have those conversations with them when they're at different developmental stages, what they can understand, what they can't. But even though we knew it was coming, particularly in the last month, we knew he wasn't getting better. And he'd gone into palliative care. He'd been inducted into the palliative care program down here at Barlin Health. It's still a shock, even though you knew it was imminent when he died it was still a shock. It's such a strange thing to go through. I can't, it's so hard to put into words. You're prepared in a way for the emotional effect that somebody who you love their death is going to have on you. And as I was saying to you before we started recording, Jenny, my older brother and my niece died in 2022 as well. And, you know, I lost my father five years ago. So I've had very close people to me die and so you're prepared for that emotional and the sadness that that aspect but what I wasn't prepared for and when Brett died was the cognitive effect it had on me and I think the more entwined your lives are with somebody and Brett and I were together for 15 years and obviously saw each other every day and our lives are entwined as a husband and wives are and I suppose it's that circle of grief almost. The person who died is at the centre of it and then there's those layers that come out. 
yeah, but the cognitive effect was just insane. Like I'm only just sort of coming out of that and starting to feel like myself a bit more eight months later. And I actually think I'll be forever changed, but. Mm. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Interesting. And we were talking about this before we started recording, but. Oh, sorry. That just really got me that story. I was getting really emotional. and scary. <laughs> that feeling of that shutdown that the body goes through. It's one thing my therapist talked to me about when I was grieving that grief mimics depression and it's like the parasympathetic nervous kicks into gear and literally forces us into, it's called a dorsal vagal shutdown. Mm -hmm. And it's where we kind of, the body just becomes slow and tries to conserve all of its energy because grieving takes up so much energy and mm -hmm. there's so much to process and go through. And so it's like this protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. And it was really helpful for me to hear that from my therapist and actually shared it with a friend recently who's just lost another very, very close person that it's okay. Like it's okay to go shut down and in the brain fog and all that stuff that happens. It's hard to learn. It's hard to socialize. It's hard to get up sometimes, but that's the body doing its thing. And my therapist said, don't rush that if you don't have to, if, if you can mm. go through that, it's actually the body's protective mechanism. I thought, mm. wow, that's amazing. And I, that sounds like exactly what you've been going through and slowly starting to come out of as the fog lifts. Yeah. It's interesting because in the immediate week, or so after Brett's death and dying on the 29th of December, trying to even find a venue for his service, which had 500 people at it. It was massive. But we, uh, my first port of call was always to my children, how do you feel about this is my idea, what we're going to do? And we, so we settled on a private cremation, first of all. And then we had a, a paddle out with everybody down at Point Road Night Beach, had a big dawn paddle out which was great because it got everybody in the water. And I don't know if you know that beach. I know you've spent time in Chalky. I do, yeah. yeah. So Point Road Nights, this beautiful protected bay that was thought, this will be perfect. And we get down there at sunrise and it was a howling easterly. <laughs> so these waves were just coming in and half the people who entered the water didn't get out to the paddle out and were just getting washed back into shore. But I look back at it and go, wow, that was perfect. And now knowing sort of with grief and that somatic healing side is moving your body and not getting things stuck within your body. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, that was actually the perfect thing. Like It was like we were in a washing machine for an hour <laughs> trying to get yes. out. There's been all these studies done about doing things when you've had a loss, like physically moving your body. And even if it's say a natural disaster or something like the floods mm. or mm. people go out and even if it's just cleaning mud off the streets or whatever, they're physically moving or doing the doing and it helps mm. to cope with what has happened to you. And when Hurricane Katrina happened, all the people from New Orleans were, were moved out and bust out and just put into these big arenas and they weren't able to go into their communities and do things. And the, the after effects of the grief in that community was longer lasting because of that inability to get in and move. Mm. And yeah, and I think for me personally, like I have a really good physical practice. I love ocean swimming and going to the gym and things like that. And I, I had to put it down. I've got a chalkboard at home in the kitchen and I wrote things down just called my daily musts. And it was all, it was the basics. It was like sleep, eat healthy, exercise, meditate, gratitude, good input, 
do some yoga, sunrise. Mm. Like it was really down to those very, very basic controllables that I could do. And I had to write them down on a board and go, okay, right. Have I done that? Have I done those three things today? And the physical effect that it had on me in the immediate and even leading into Brent dying because you know what's coming was I, I felt like I was going to be sick every day. I'd get up, I'd have a bomb out, sound asleep, but then wake up and feel like I was going to vomit and I'd go downstairs and about the only thing I could eat was maybe a mango with a bit of yogurt. I had the same thing for weeks. Like I'd bought a tray of mangoes and went through that very light sort of food. I had a beautiful neighbor who was dropping me around, just really basic, gorgeous dals or little soups and things like this that were easy to digest. So that yeah. physical kind of side of things and crying on the kitchen floor for a while and then right okay because I've got to organize a funeral and I'm still do things for the kids and the kids had started summer holidays and they wanted to still go to the beach and hang out with their friends and you know Fuck. the the yeah it was crazy I mean the most amazing support for me was like the friends kids families like they just scooped them up and took them places and Oh, how good is that? Yeah. And thank God my older sister flew in from WA. Uh, New Year's Eve, she flew in and just helped me with everything. She's just a beautiful presence. She's a nurse and she's studying art therapy. And so she's just this beautiful, calm presence, which was so helpful. But mm. yeah, so but the cognitive effect was quite, you know, so unprepared for that. And for how long it lasted, six months, it's been almost, it's coming up to nine months since he died. And as I said to you, I'm just starting to feel like I'm yeah, feeling a little bit more like myself again. And and yeah, yeah dipping your toe back into socialising or whatever. I don't like going to things where it's almost like an uncontrolled environment. <laughs> like yeah. some song might come on or something and it's like, oh, yeah, got to get out of here. In a way, Danny, it's almost similar to when you first decide to take that step and take alcohol out of your life. You need that exit plan or whatever. You need to have trusted people around you, that sort of environment. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And being prepared. Is it like being prepared, knowing what's going on? hundred percent. Because yeah, essentially yeah. too, you've gone through a huge trauma. And it's little wonder too that there is all that brain fog and the body's sort of shutting down a little bit. And mm. Bessel van der Kolk talks th about this a lot, about moving trauma through the body. And his book, The Body Keeps the Score, he talks about that. But mm. it's very important. I always find too, like just even just like a bit of gentle dancing, I found really beneficial or slow walking, still slow mm. things, but still keeping some movement going. Talk to me, Kat, because I know, look, a lot of people do end up drinking their way through grief to numb out and mm. I'm absolutely there's no judgment here about that whatsoever mm. I get it but how do you feel like that would have affected you had you started drinking like can you talk to me a bit about just from your perspective how mm. you feel that if you had have started to drink on top of all this what effect that oh. might have had on you it kids? would have been absolutely the worst thing I could do it would have been shocking I believe that because I haven't done that, I've been able to process things in a more healthy way, obviously. I've been able to actually process things. As far as my kids go, for me, I've got to be their rock. I've got to be this calm, 
immovable mountain for them. Like I've got to be like friggin' Mount Everest for my children. If you can't show up authentically and if you're preoccupied with getting a drink, going drinking, being hungover, whatever it is, you are not there for the people who need you the most. Thankfully, I didn't have urges. I'm so grateful that I'd had a good two years of not drinking under my belt prior to all of this happening. But yeah, it's been interesting. I chose to have Brett's memorial service as an alcohol-free event for several reasons. One, Brett and I didn't drink and we only had the venue for a set amount of time. Like it was really challenging finding a, a big venue in Geelong and I wanted something that really resonated as a with Brent's personality and we found we had this beautiful venue down here the paper mill it's an old paper mill and gallery but we only had the venue till five o'clock because it was all around that shutdown period of New Year's Eve or New Year's and Christmas his memorial service I was able to make it on the 10th of January and they weren't open but they opened for us to have it there and yeah, I thought, well, the last thing I want is people either settling in after a couple of drinks and then not being able to move them out of the venue or having people who I didn't know, like because there would be a lot of people there who I had never met, perhaps old school friends or colleagues of Brett's or whatever, and having them a bit tipsy coming up and hanging off me and, oh, we love Brett, or, you know, I was like, I couldn't have stand it and mm-hmm. <laughs> was like, get off me. And um, mm-hmm. and knowing obviously that, that there was going to be a lot of children there, like a, a lot of the kids' friends came as well, which was really lovely. So I just wanted to create a beautiful environment and really having proper connection for the short period. Like we had probably a couple of hours after the service for everyone just to have a like a bite to eat and drink. So we put on a whole lot of alcohol-free beers, heaps normals and the sober. I love that. Wow. Put on a heap of that. So that was good. People were like, oh, you created a bit of a... So it was an alcohol-free point. funeral. It was an alcohol-free funeral. <laughs> wow. wow. And there is a pub very close by that people were able to go to and they did. And it was like I, I had nothing to do with that that was sort of organized maybe his old school friends decided to go there it's like yep that's fine I was so exhausted and I just wanted to leave and take the kids home and I just went home with a couple of close girlfriends and and the kids and just relaxed and had a bit to eat and went to bed unbelievable did you get any pushback from anyone did anyone whinge at you about not having alcohol there or question you about it no, I made sure I had uh, the chaplain from the fire brigade. He did the service. He was wonderful. So it wasn't a religious service, but he, at the very end, thanked the people who I wanted to thank and then just said, please respect that this is an alcohol-free event. And, yeah, that was it. I think the bar staff said some people maybe either didn't hear it because there was people outside as well. It was it had all spilled out of the venue and there was a couple of people who came and asked for a beer and they said, oh, no, we're not serving alcohol today. There's this. They offered the drink choices that were there and they were like, oh, okay, yep, no worries. But that was, that was it. Nobody pushed back. Yeah, which was great. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yeah. That's so amazing and so inspiring. Yeah. Like for people yeah. that would seem really 
scary to, yeah. to be able to do that. And but I think yeah. wow, that's just incredible. Well done. Mm. And yeah, his his dad offered. He said, oh, "I've got some money I'd like to put on the bar." And I just went, "No, don't worry about it. Like it's not going to be. There's not going to be alcohol." And he was like, "Oh, so maybe a generational thing." And I said, "Hang on to it. Hang on to your money. Don't worry. You know, spend it on the kids. Take them to the movies or whatever over the over the summer." It's and, nice um, and so kind yeah. of just redirecting the conversation yeah. to a, a more positive or a different yeah. alternative. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I just said to him, now I've decided it's an alcohol-free week. So, yeah, it differs yeah. for people, but yeah. I think it was great, yeah. And just encouraging people to have all those connections without the need for alcohol. Absolutely. I mm. love that. Did anyone give you any feedback? Just wondering if anyone said afterwards that that was good or that they Yeah, like, yeah, a few people were like, that was great. Didn't worry me at all not to have a drink. And so it can be done. You can have alcohol-free weddings and, you know, you can do all those. Mm. You can commiserate and celebrate and everything in between without alcohol. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And like you say, Gosh, I can imagine how exhausted you would have been and just thank God you didn't have to deal with the all of that. Yeah, amazing. Well done. Well, it was funny because I still had to, people were coming up to me, which was, of course, like people who I don't know who wanted to say, oh, I knew Brett through this or that. And and uh, I'm a pretty private person. I'll hug and kiss my friends and, you know, but I, people would come up and want to, they'd be like, eh, I would have, maybe offered my hand to shake the hand and just say, oh, thanks for coming. And then they'd be in. I was like, so it would have been 10 times worse. I think if people were drunk, I'd, I had to sort of fend a few off. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. yeah. Feel uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. If you don't like that mm. people in your space like that. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Have you had any time since cat where you felt like, oh, I just want to drink to just get rid of this feeling is that popped up at all or into your mind at all? No, it hasn't. What has kept me sane and what works for me is I've got a fairly high addiction to CrossFit now. I'm down <laughs> at the gym. <laughs> I go down the gym four times a week. I had a big stretch of not doing anything. I suppose in January I was very focused on the children and they were on school holidays and so trying to help them with things. And then on February I was very focused on myself and doing like self-care, going and getting a massage or a facial or whatever. And March, I ended up, I got really sick. I had cold, a head cold that lasted like three weeks and I ended up with a foot injury because I all the dog walking was down to me now. And so I ended up with this foot injury and I thought, well, that's my body's way of saying, if you're not going to stop, we're going to stop you yeah. <laughs> in your tracks. And so I just spent a month like, laying around at home which was good but perfect yeah I haven't had any cravings to drink at all and I think yeah having that two years of not drinking set me up well for this and it was one of the reasons why I wanted to stop drinking in the first place back in February although maybe not as clear when I first started because I don't think I went into not removing alcohol from my life it was like oh I don't think I ever thought it would be forever it was such a, it's just gradually developed into that. But um, yeah, Brett's illness and ongoing health issues was one of the reasons why I wanted to quit drinking and the increased risk of cancer, like breast cancer and things like this. Because I was sort of thinking, well, you know, 
I might be a single parent, but breast cancer, it's not going away. It just keeps coming up. It was like a game of whack-a-mole with him. You know, there was something every year that we were dealing with. Yeah, it's interesting. I've sort of thought about it lately. It's interesting as humans what we choose to ignore. Alcohol has been deemed a class one carcinogenic by the World Health Organization. Now, in my job as a firefighter, we have other class one carcinogenics that we deal with, like asbestos or diesel particulates. Now, you certainly wouldn't go ingesting those things deliberately, would you? I don't know. Yep. We put the blinkers on when it comes mm-hmm. to alcohol. We ignore that fact. We're a strange bunch, humans, aren't we? What we can choose to cherry pick. Oh, it's incredible. And people that have had cancer, and again, no judgment here, mm-hmm. but people that have had cancer and seeing them still drinking once they've got the all clear or even while they're in treatment, it's like, wow, why yeah. are you doing this? But you can't say it. Like, yeah. it's not, I mean, I think they know that. They're not silly. Yeah. So it's not, yeah. I think, to say, why are you doing that is not helpful. You do stop to wonder, like, shit, yeah, this is not yeah. safe, what you're doing. But What you're doing. Yeah. And with Brett, when he was having some pretty serious immunotherapy treatments, it really destroyed his liver. At one stage, he went into emergency and was put on these high-dose steroids. So it was like a liver inflammation. But he hadn't drunk for a good couple of years either. And the doctor did say to him, thank God your liver was in such good shape because this episode could have actually killed you, like where he was. Wow. Uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. So all that makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Kat, that's such a big, big thing to go through. I could not imagine to lose my husband. So just my hat's off to you for everything that you're carrying and that you're doing and keeping yourself sober. And it's what I love too, what you said earlier, is having that checklist, especially as you did early on, like making sure that you were doing all those things. Can you just go through them again? Just those criteria to hit each day? Because that's really great for people to hear, I think. It was very basic. Like sleep was the first one. Eat healthy, exercise. And they're the key pillars of good health, really, those three things. I added in meditate, some gratitude practice, good input. I had on there as well, no toxic people. But yeah, I just, my tolerance was like, you know, I'm sorry, you're out. Taking vitamins like in magnesium, and I still do. I take magnesium every day, but magnesium, activated bees, yoga, sunrise on waking, because I like to get up and go down to the beach and have a swim. So getting in the ocean a few times a week and having that sunlight mm-hmm. in the morning, because then that would help me get to sleep at night. My sleep was pretty disrupted for a while or I, or I would fall asleep, but then wake up at sort of three or four in the morning and then your, your brain would go. It, it was a daily shock in it for a long time to uh, wake up in the morning and yeah, go, oh, that's right. You're not here. And some days it's still really hard. You lay there and it's really hard to get yourself out of bed. So I ride, you know, I have to get up. I have to get the children off to school or so having that practice for me of getting up and going down the beach is sometimes all that gets me up and gets me moving. And once I do that and get in the water, it's like baby steps. Once you do that, then you can do that. And then your day will be underway and you'll have things to do and look forward to, or yeah, trying to find that little glimmer of uh, light and hope in each day and 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely gratitude is one great thing that helps. How does one have gratitude? Like how did you find it when, because I'm sure people listening, you know, how the fuck do you have gratitude mm. when you're going through that? Did you find that difficult at all? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you'd be like, and, and of course I've had periods where I'm fucking angry, you know, and I'm just like, why the fuck has this happened? It's such a huge responsibility to now be parenting these kids alone and all the work of having your partner die in a way, like all the legal work and all of that sort of stuff, all of the things that you have to do to, I suppose it's closed someone's life down. So yeah, I've certainly had those experiences. What I try to concentrate on or try to look at is say the gifts that Brett gave me. So we live in a beautiful house that he had renovated in 2021. Brett was a a builder and no building project ever phased him. And he did a fantastic renovation to this house. So to look around and right now I'm sitting at a desk in the office that he built, our kitchen table he built. So look around and look at those things as gifts and, and look at the children. Well, I've got these beautiful gifts of these children. And for me, and, and Brett and I spoke about it when he was alive, it's like his death doesn't have to dominate their lives going forward. So I'm determined to make sure that they have you know, and maybe I can't make sure everybody has their own journey that they have their own choices in life to make as well. But one thing a psychologist said to me very early on was like, and this was when Brett and I started seeing a psychologist, she said to us, if the parents are okay, the kids will be okay. So I really hold on to that. I'm like, if I'm okay, if I can be okay, and I, and I have my moments of not being okay, and the kids see that as well. It's not like Which I'm is healthy, here. right? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They've seen me crying and everything. Like they've seen the effect of grief on me, but then they've seen me go, okay, today's good and let's go and do this. And we still go out and have adventures. And I recently took them away on a holiday. And and not long after Brett died in March, I took my son up to the Gold Coast for his 10th birthday. And we were like Cubs on tour on the jet skis zipping around the Gold yeah. Coast. But I'm not going to let this, like it's fucked. It's shit. It's, you know, I'm going to say it's fucking shit. Cancer's fucked. Like to take a father away from his young kids is, yeah, it's awful. It happens and it's happened to other people who I know. And for them, I think for the kids, it's that they have met other kids whose pet fathers have died. I've met another couple of ladies, one lives down the road from me whose husband died of melanoma. And so they know it happens, especially with kids. They just want to be the same, you know. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be the kid whose dad died of cancer. And it's like, but they've made some connections with other kids where it's like, oh, okay, this does happen to other people as well. And it's... I don't sort of dwell on that, why me? I don't think that's healthy. And in some respects, I think, well, why not me? Like, this happens. And I think there's one in 20 children that are affected by a parental death under the age of 18. So it's like, well, you know, there's some pretty high stats there. (laughs) Yeah. As far as the gratitude and a long answer is just to, yeah, try and look at the gifts that Brett gave us and his humour and... His, his warmth and 
we talk about him all the time now and just funny stories. For a while it was hard. My son, he couldn't look at photos of him for quite a while. He was like, no, too sad, too sad. But now, you know, we just talk about him in more of a matter-of-fact way and laugh at things he did or said or say, well, what do you think Dad would say? I bring him into parenting conversations and the bad call mm. now it's good. <laughs> I go, I say, well, what do you think Dad would say in this instance? And I think he'd be proudly disappointed. I can make him say anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got the power now. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, that's so beautiful. I really love that too, the having the gratitude and, and looking for the gifts that he's left you with. And I think that's absolutely wonderful and such a beautiful thing for the kids to see. And it sounds like you're handling it so well. You sound so strong. Also, I just want to say that those checkpoints for your how to get mm. through your day, that's just a great way to live your life. Grieving live your life. Yeah. Yeah. Making sure that you sleep well and eat well and exercise and you have gratitude. I think that's absolutely wonderful. And yeah, an absolutely beautiful practice to do for everybody. So yeah, well done. Is there anything that you could offer for people that you felt were going into this journey? Just some wisdom that you could impart? Yeah, I think there's no right or wrong way to grieve, obviously. It probably takes a lot longer than we in the Western world tend to allow. I mean, we have, if you're grieving for longer than six months, it's like they, they call it complicated grief or a grief disorder. And it's so, it's just so wrong. And I think I'll be grieving Brett's death for the rest of my life, as will our children. I'm grieving him into the future as well. Like, yeah, that he won't be around for like milestones that come up, even just the, you know, just the ordinary days as well. There, um, yeah. So I think we need to talk more about death and dying in our society. We're so close. We're just so. I think it's getting better, but we, yeah, we seem really closed off to it. I think it's important to think about your own death or your loved ones while they're healthy. I suppose you can take the emotion out of it. You can have things in place going forward that just some basic wishes about what you want would be helpful for everyone. I mean, I think we wander around in this false belief that we're we're always going to be here and it's like uh spoiler alert everybody we're all going to die <laughs> you know it's... oh it's such an important that's an important practice yeah. too to think about uh, I often do this one where I just if something's bugging me I just mm. think if I only had a week to left to live would this be bugging me that's uh, one thing and sometimes if Ash is bugging me I might imagine imagine if he went out for a surf and got eaten by a shark and was it need to bug you yeah, or this was the last conversation I was ever going to have with yeah. him. Or you think about that yeah. with anyone that you have, like yeah. you were the last person I was going to have a conversation with. Notice how much deeper you drop into conversation, how you turn on your listening ears and you become so present with that person. It's like you want to suck everything up, every Absolutely. every last morsel. Look, oh, I know yeah. so many people are going through grief. I know lots of people have been passing away with cancer, especially recently yeah. it seems, and it's such a big time for people. And it's a conversation well, I want to keep having on this podcast of how to kind of do it well and do it. We're probably getting into that age group. You know? Yeah, I think like, it's that. I'm 50. Yeah. Brett was 50 when he died. Yeah, I'm the same. I know people who are going through breast cancer treatment, other cancers. Yeah. And yeah. For, for the men in our lives, like go and get your health checks 
for everything, like if you think about how often you service your car every six months or every 12 months, are you servicing your car more regularly than you're servicing your own body, than you're going and getting your blood pressure checked or Yeah, or get whatever. it checked, um, get it checked. I've got a friend going to get her breast off tomorrow because she went into, there was a bus set up here in yeah. Ocean Shores and she just went in and thought, I'll go in because it was free, it was there and it was convenient. She went in and got uh, her breast checked and they found this very aggressive breast cancer she had wow. no idea and it wasn't no a typical shape it didn't feel like the pee it was sort of more longer Ooh. and she just had no idea absolutely no idea it's aggressive and they've got her in and they're getting the boob off within like oh. weeks wow so thank god That's she got major that. yeah thank god yeah. she got that checked out so yeah no i think that what we were just talking about with like the buddhists really do a lot of contemplation yeah. and meditation on death mm-hmm. and i think that's something that we could do better in western society for sure oh absolutely um, the whole death and dying yeah. process is definitely something that needs to be spoken about more and normalized mm. my good friend yeah. zenith virago she does death walker training but she's got a great book called on death and dying she sort of started this whole kind of movement of natural death and natural mm. burials and things like that and she's an amazing woman and we had some amazing chats about death and dying and it's not an easy conversation to have but it's no. one that we're all going to go through and hopefully yeah. we can do that from a really healthy standpoint and do it and feel the feels and do everything that needs to be done and let the body process and let the grieving happen as naturally as we can. I was actually just talking to another musician the other day on the weekend, Andrea Kerwin, and she's Fiji and she was telling me that when someone dies in the family or in the community, they don't drink for 100 days. Oh, yeah. And the reason they don't drink alcohol for 100 days is to have that their clarity of mine and to be able to do the grieving process properly. I thought mm. that's fascinating. So I want to get her on and I might start a new podcast well, on grief. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good conversation. It's one that, that, that yeah, we need to have. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Having that and having those conversations when you're not in a place of imminent death or you're with a diagnosis of something, because if you can take that emotional aspect a, a little bit out of it and just have a, yeah, have that conversation about, well, what would I like? What sort of a death would I like to have? Or even just some of your wishes around what you want done. I mean, it was so challenging for Brett to have those conversations because he didn't want to go. He he mm-hmm. wanted to be here. To That was torturous for him to think about not being here for his kids. And so sort of in the last couple of days before he died, I was like, you haven't even told me if you want to be cremated or buried or... You know, so we're having these conversations in the last few days and writing things down rather than, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, was, it is what it is, but it was so hard for him to, like, to go there. Like, And I understand that. Yeah, um, it's so important. Actually, Hayley, who's been on this podcast before, was quite some time ago now, she's a, also a, a death walker, I guess you call it. She does natural burials and things throughout here mm-hmm. in the Northern Rivers. She did a post today on exactly that saying that yeah. it's so important for people to express their wishes, like have the conversation, say what you want. So also your family aren't yeah. left wondering what the fuck or what? she experiences family fighting, all sorts of stuff goes on. So yeah. it's yeah. important to know, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. someone and it doesn't have to be much, just basic, basic conversation. It doesn't need to be too much. It's uncomfortable, but one that needs to be had. Even like, I especially find like right before, like I always thought my dad would want to be cremated, but right at the end he changed his mind. And so I was like, right, okay, you right. sure? 
He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like, make yeah. sure you tell a few other people dancing, but it's not just me. But yes, so it's really important, yeah. especially in big families. Like you'll sure. have one, yeah, like one person who wants to do this. Oh no, they told me that they wanted to have this done, and so if you're having if they've had conversations with, say, in your case, like different children within the family, but it's right. not written down, like mm-hmm. if, it, if it was just written down. And and I think you can, a little bit of planning, you can make things a lot easier for the people left behind. And that's what you want. <laughs> that's yeah. what you want to do, ultimately. Yeah. Did Brett die yeah. at home? Well, not in our house. He died at his mother's house. He he was discharged from hospital on the 23rd of December. So right before Christmas, he came home to our house, but he didn't want to die in our house. He was very much like he didn't want to, he goes, no, this is our home and the kids have to live here. And so he didn't want to do that. So we oh. settled on a, yeah, we, we settled on a shared care option, I suppose, with his mum who also lives in Geelong. So he was here for a couple of nights and like it was really quite, it was exhausting. I look back at photos of me around Christmas and I've just got two black pandarings. And and then we had some really hot weather just after Christmas. We had a 40-degree day on the 26th or something, 27th. So we, we moved him over to his mum's and he was okay. Like he was able to, when I say he was okay, he had a Nicky pump in his leg delivering morphine, but he was able to get up and walk and get into the car and like he was amazing. He was so strong. The strength he had was incredible. But we moved him over to his mum was because she had an air conditioned bedroom upstairs. So he was having those cancer sweats as well in the last mm. month and very uncomfortable. So he was able to be up in this room with an air con set at 17 degrees or whatever, like a fridge. But he was really comfortable in there. So that was good. And he had a few days there. We did a really beautiful sound healing didgeridoo sound healing a friend of brett's and mine he came over and did that on the day that brett died it was quite amazing actually i think that helped sort of move move brett on but um Mm. yeah you know it's been a period of time i suppose you you know when you ask about advice for people it's you're in a dark forest in a way you're going through this dark forest it's not always going to be like this. And, I, and knowing that things always change, life is impermanent and always changing. So, yeah. and I think if you're trying to hold on to something that's gone, that's really a source of grief and not really a solution to it. I think like you yeah. have to let it, when we're talking about somatic healing and letting things flow through the body, it's all about letting that flow and if you're drinking you're going to create a blockage there because you're not allowing things to move through things have a way of working out don't they they may not work out how you hope they will or you think they will but it'll work out exactly as it's supposed to be absolutely yeah Mm. and that's right it's it does create such a blockage and i know it's hard and people just don't want to feel anymore. But if you can sit through that, those feelings and let them move through, let them process, you're going to be much better off for it. Before you go, I just want to mention a book that a really good friend of mine, she lost her husband around about a similar time to you. And he died of esophageal cancer. We were talking yesterday and she said, oh, Danny, I'm reading this amazing book, which I must say I haven't read yet, but mm-hmm. I know her and I trust her. And she said, this book is incredible. And it's called The Smell of Rain on Dust grief and praise and the author is looks like i can't pronounce the name very well but martin 
Prechtel. So I'll put this in the show notes as well, Martin, and then P-R-E-C-H-T-E-L. And she said it's just been an absolute game changer for her and it's shifted her mindset and she's in a really in a really beautiful place with it from reading this book. So, yeah, so I'm just putting that out there for the listeners. I'm going to read it next week when I just finished my current book and have a listen to it as well. So, yeah. yeah. So, Kat, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this huge story and I think it's an example of good grieving, grieving well. And um, Thanks, Daddy. Yeah. Yeah. Well thank you. Sending you and the kids heaps of love. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kat. Bye, Daddy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.